0: Welcome to the Pluto is a Planet podcast, where you can find science fiction and fantasy novels and short story reviews ranging from vintage science fiction novels by H.G. Wells and Mary Shelley to present day science fiction cyberpunk novellas. In this episode, I will be reviewing the short story Mortal Gods, written by Orson Scott Card, published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in January of 1979. It was subsequently compiled into a book called Cruel Miracles Tales of Death, Hope, and Holiness, and then was included in an omnibus of the short fiction of Orson Scott Card called Maps in a Mirror. Orson Scott Card first started writing science fiction because he submitted a story to Ben Bovo, who's a well-known publisher of science fiction and short stories. And he Ben Bova rejected Orson Scott Card's first offering and told him to try and write a science fiction story. And Orson Scott Card returned with Ender's Game, the short story, which was in 1977. Ender's Game is now one of the most well-known science fiction novels from the era of the 1970s and 80s. I would say the late 20th century science fiction novel, Pantheon. He is... Ender's Game is up there at the top. Ben Bova continued to publish his work and his wife, Barbara Bova, became his literary agent. And this is, yeah, and again, one of those things where... I am noticing this trend of authors often get help. They get mentored by other authors or by publishers. And I see Ben Bova's hand in a lot of the stories I have been reviewing so far. He seems to always be in the background, um, which I at some point I'm going to need to do a Podcast about Ben Bova, I think, because um he definitely had an an incredible influence on science fiction uh in the late twentieth century. Orson Scott Card's best known story is Ender's Game. Orson Scott Card won the award for best new writer for Ender's Game In 1978, the short story version. In 1985 and 1986, Ender's Game won the Nebula and Hugo Awards. And in 1986 and 1987, he won the Nebula and Hugo Awards for its sequel, Speaker for the Dead. And He then wrote more science fiction um, and actually kept on winning awards. He was, from 1984 to 1991, he won Hugo and Nebula awards every year, and that's almost unheard of. That's, you know, seven years straight of winning Hugo and Nebula awards when Plenty of authors, either very good science fiction authors never won one or some very good science fiction authors were grateful to receive one. And he, you know, he kept, he won for seven years in a row. Um, He did, he's won a ton of other ones. He's won accolades and he's been a great influence on many, many science fiction authors. He's extremely prolific as well. He wrote nine science fiction stories in one year in nineteen, and they were published in nineteen seventy eight. He has written several sequels and prequels to Ender's Game, and he also wrote a parallel timeline uh, from Ender's Game called um, Ender's Shadow, which is about uh, one of Ender's friends named Bean, which was also a great uh, series he's written a series that is heavily based in his Mormon faith called um Alvin um Prentice um it's the Alvin the Prentice the Maker series and he has written over 50 short stories i personally well i can't say if i like his short stories or his novels more it really depends because a lot of times his novels end up being sort of like short stories that have been connected together. His stories are imbued with a great deal of philosophy because he really is extremely good at writing succinctly about ideas and thoughts of people. And he creates beautiful worlds and he can do it very easily. Not easily. He makes it look easy. He can create a world in like two sentences, which I, I think is really beautiful. And he and his characters are really very well written. You connect to them a lot. He he does have a tendency of writing from the viewpoint of um, exceptional child or um, who grows up and does like a journey, uh, a hero's journey sort of thing. But he can write really well from the viewpoint of an alien and make you sympathize with an alien or empathize with an alien, which is not so easy to do. So he can, he's, he is a, he is a really brilliant writer. Um, unfortunately, he is also a problematic writer. I do highly recommend his books. But I would also say it's important to also be aware of his viewpoints. And I'm going to discuss more of that later. What do I say about Orson Scott Card that hasn't been already said? He's one of the powerhouses of the science fiction world right now. He. I. I think one of the reasons why it took me so long to get this next episode out was, well, one of the reasons was is because I ended up suffering a concussion um, from <laughs> trying to move something in a in a um, garage up in the rafters and there was a door up in the rafters and it slipped and fell on my head and gave me a concussion, which put me... Um, not necessarily, well, it did put me on a commission for a couple of days, um, and it definitely did not put me in the mood to want to uh, do a podcast for a couple of weeks. So I do hope I have some followers, and if I do, I do apologize that I haven't um, had a newer podcast sooner, but the other reason why is because I was thinking, oh, I really should include Orson Scott Card because I am such a fan, even though it's very problematic now because um, Orson Scott Card ended up um, being very controversial in his comments about uh, people who are gay or... Um, um, LGBTQ+, and because he spoke out so vehemently and was so bigoted, a lot of people have decided to not read his books anymore and not read his stories, and they boycotted the... This all kind of came out when the movie Ender's Game came out, which... um, really wasn't that great of a movie uh, and it really didn't capture it really didn't capture the story Ender's game is a brilliant story um and it really didn't capture the the essence of Ender's game um the only thing i can say is that when they did the the battle scenes in the um In the battle school, uh, that actually opened my eyes into what it might have looked like. But other than that, I mean, I wouldn't dare try and review Ender's Game, even the short story Ender's Game, because it's so famous or infamous that it's been reviewed by people much better at reviewing than me. So I thought I would do one of his earliest stories. I was actually really surprised. I was a bit naive about Orson Scott Card when it was... um, when I, I'd i heard that he was so homophobic, because in one of his more famous stories, um, or in one of his more um, popular novels, which I really loved called Songmaster, one of the main characters is gay. And I thought, oh, well, that can't be then that he's, you know he's not homophobic he can't be homophobic because one of his main characters is gay and was written very sympathetically and but then i thought afterwards oh yes okay so this character who was gay and then it ended up being one of those tropes where it's like the gay character is the one who dies and he died in a horrific way because of a consequence of him being gay because he fell in love with the main character And, like, the the consequence was that he basically had his genitals cut off, and I'm thinking, oh, well, yeah, I guess then that, yeah, that would be a cautionary tale, Um, you know? So yes, he did write a sympathetic gay character, but of course then that gay character died because he was gay. And so that was, that made me feel a bit foolish about thinking oh that he wasn't homophobic, and it turned out he was. so. I don't know what the answer is. There are, there's a really great article written. um, I can't remember the name of the author, but she wrote uh, about how, um, I think it's called Orson Scott Card, um, friend, author, mentor, bigot. And it's about, um, she writes about how she was a friend of Orson Scott Card's, he was a mentor of hers. He, um, she actually went to one of his Writing camps, which I always really want to go to all these writing camps that I keep on hearing about where people like go and I don't know. I kind of imagine that people like Go and live in cabins and just write and have like seminars. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like you were like in the woods and all you had to do was just Write stories for like a month Maybe not a month. It might be too much for a month but for like two weeks you're out in the woods and you're writing stories and you're comparing your stories to other writers with other writers and you're like having all these workshops and, you know, sessions where you're, you know, telling each other the stories and giving each other advice. And so the workshops, that's what they're called. Yeah. Like, so like the Ohio workshop and, or Cisco Card has those as well, or he used to, she used to go to those and um, she wrote that she actually ate at his table, met his family. And then when, She came out as gay, found out that um, he was very homophobic and spoke out against, you know, her and her, her existence as a gay person. And it's just really sad, I mean, I just... She writes about how she would never watch Ender's Game and she won't read the book again, but she still keeps the book because it was an important part of her childhood where like I said, you know, she was a very gifted and, and intelligent is a very gifted and intelligent person but was a very gifted and intelligent child and how it's very difficult sometimes to be a gifted child and to be far ahead of your peers and have to deal with bullying and all that all that goes along with it and how to navigate the world and people judging you and people taking advantage of you, and Ender's Game helped her, but then the writer of Ender's Game ended up being vehemently, virently, uh, I'm saying a lot of V words, but being very vitriolic about her describing her lifestyle and being just pretty awful. And I don't really know the answer to that, because... It's a a situation of how do you separate the artist from the art? Um, I remember my friend Tracy has, she recommended a story for me because I remember, I think I was probably about Orsa Scott Card actually, but there's a story about um, the same thing where it was talking about Pablo Picasso and how he ruined so many women's lives and how do you separate his art from, from him? It's really difficult to to try and and figure out, is Orson Scott Card a brilliant writer? Yes. Is he a good man who does bad things? Or is he a bad man that does good things? Um, The dichotomy of the human soul, does he have to answer for everything he does? I don't have the answer to that and I think you just have to make your own decision because I'm not going to tell you who who and what to read, aside from telling you that whether writing is good or not or whether a story is good or not. And maybe after you've created something, it's kind of like when you give something to somebody, you can give somebody, you can give somebody $100 and What they choose to do with that $100, you you don't have any say in it because it was a gift and you can paint a painting and give it to somebody and they can choose to give it to somebody else or use it to, you know, for a roof of their chicken coop, you know, like somebody did with Van Van Gogh's paintings, Um, which did get saved afterwards, thank goodness. Um but once you give something, once you've created something, you set it out in the world, is it still yours? And does it have to answer for your crimes? There are plenty of artists who have done horrible things and we can still love the art they made. I don't know, like I said, I don't I don't have an answer for it. Um, I guess I'll just do a review of the art of the story that's being, that, that was created back in, in the 1970s. And the story that I was reviewing today is King's Meat. Um, I was going to do, oh, no, not, I was going to do the story King's Meat, but then I just, I found it a bit too disturbing. (laughs) So, um, I thought, okay. Let's just do Mortal Gods, which is, an, is a uh, short story. At the introduction of Cruel Miracles, which is a compilation of Orson Scott Card's short stories about death, hope, and holiness, which have a religious tone to them, quite a lot of them do. In the introduction, Orson Scott Card wrote, I believe that speculative fiction, science fiction in particular, is the last American refuge of religious literature. An odd thing to say, it might seem, particularly since science fiction openly requires that gods be either absent or explained. He further writes that real religious literature, he thinks, explores the nature of the universe and discovers the purpose behind it. And he thinks that when we find that purpose, we have found God, because in all religions at all times, regardless of the outward description of God or gods, deity serves the same role. He or she or they is the purposer, the planner, and human beings, either with or without their knowledge or consent, depending on one's theology, are following that plan. And in this story, Mortal Gods, he actually touches on the subject of the meaning of life. The first sentence that you read in the short story Mortal Gods is the following. The first contact was peaceful, almost uneventful. Sudden landings near government buildings all over the world, brief discussions in the native languages, followed by treaties allowing the aliens to build certain buildings in certain places in exchange for certain favors. Nothing spectacular. And what the aliens end up wanting to do is to make buildings in cemeteries that are places of worship, like mosques or cathedrals or synagogues or temples. And what happens is just that these these aliens are resident in these buildings, and anyone can walk into them and just sit and talk to these aliens, and the aliens give them their full attention, and then they listen to the stories, and then the people leave feeling that somebody's listened to them who's traveled for thousands of light years. Uh, The aliens also bring some technology, and they furthermore uh, prove that people can't travel to other stars, that they are stuck living in this solar system because faster than light travel doesn't exist. The reason why the aliens can travel this far is because they actually just divide and their intelligence continues. They reproduce by mitosis and they... So their memories go back to the very beginnings of time. One of the lines in here that I love actually about this, uh, about the fact that uh, finding out that they couldn't, people couldn't travel faster than light is this, in this sentence. And gradually life settled into a peaceful routine. Scientists, it is true, kept on discovering and engineers kept on building according to those discoveries. And so changes did come. But knowing now that there was no great scientific revolution just around the corner, no tremendous discovery that would open up the stars, men and women settled down by and large to the business of being happy. The paragraph ends with this one line. It wasn't as hard as people had supposed. <laughs> Which I think is, it's, yeah, it's a great line. So with that expository beginning, it the story continues with a man named Willard Crane, who watches these aliens um, who have a temple built in Salt Lake City in the middle of a cemetery, which I'm actually curious about because I have a friend, Ann, who lives in Salt Lake City and actually gives the address uh, from 7th Avenue and the L Street to the cemetery not far away. I'm gonna have to ask her if there's a cemetery there, <laughs> where practically everyone had been buried. And it said, um, It was an obvious mimic of old Mormon temple architecture, meaning it was a monstrosity of conflicting periods that somehow, perhaps through intense sincerity, managed to be beautiful anyway, which I thought was also very funny because if you've ever seen a Mormon temple, they are basically that. (laughs) They're they're a bit of a monstrosity, but they they also are beautiful. Uh, so, I thought that was great. So he decides he's going to have an argument with one of the aliens, and the alien does explain to him, because he goes in and he says, why? Why have you done this? Why have you built these? And the alien says to him, because we want to talk with you, because humans are the only creatures in the universe who die, who have an ending the rest of the universe, their evolution ended up going along the same lines in which they have mitosis and they all live forever. And humans were the only ones who died. And so all the aliens found this an incredibly beautiful thing because according to the aliens, because they had no, they had no beginning and middle and end of their lives that they just live forever they didn't have art and they didn't have things that, and literature, they didn't have things that lived beyond them because they lived forever. And so Orson Scott Card writes, wrote later about this. Um, If you ever, if you are a fan of Orson Scott Card, I do highly recommend the, um, the compilation Maps in a Mirror it was published, let me see, oh, in 2004. I do recommend that. So, Ors- because it also has what Orson Scott Card, ha- he has forwards and afterwards to all of this. So he actually has a, a an afterword that describes his thoughts about mortal gods. And he says it was based on an essay. This idea, Orson Scott Card was saying that for art to exist, it does have to have boundaries in time and space, and he said the very reason why human beings hunger so for art, especially for storytelling, is because art, with its beginnings and endings, provides an overlay of order in the chaos of life. Life never means anything, not clearly enough to count on it, but art always means something. Its very edges declare that this is inside the boundary and everything else is out. He said also that this speculation um, was the concept for the um, second story in the Ender's Game trilogy, Speaker for the Dead. And in the story of uh, Mortal Gods, it turns out that um, Mr. Crank goes back and to tell them, you know, he says to tell them off, but the aliens say, no, you wanted us to see, to watch you die. So and, and they viewed it as a great honor um, when he did, and they mourned the fact that they could not. So Scott Card does this a lot in his stories. He kind of t- tells morality tales almost, um, or he puts through, he, he, he basically fleshes out his ideas about life and philosophy through his stories, um, oh my goodness, there's a, one of his novels is called Worms, W-Y-R-M-S. And I swear when I was in college, I underlined that book because it had such, you know, deep philosophical meaning to me. I've read it afterwards, and I've since I've done some studies on philosophy, I've studied up a bit more on philosophy, and I've realized now that they weren't very original ideas, but it, it was also, it was still good. It's still a great story. And it, and it's, but it was definitely more of like a, um like a pilgrim's pro- progress where it's kind of like people will t- say things, but they'll be spouting off philosophy of, of what they think life should be like, which is, you know, it's, it's good. It's, it's fine. And I do enjoy his stories. I think that this was just—it was a, this was a beautiful little short story, um, and it was an interesting idea, that if you had, if if mortals believe in immortal gods, why wouldn't immortals believe in mortal gods, and wish that they were mortal? I think this has been viewed on. You know, it it's been researched or it's been. In other novels um, the the idea of immortality and the idea of the ennui of of immortality and how the weight of that can be crushing um, Anne Rice does that in um, her vampire novels, and, you know the whole idea of that you know immortality sounds like a wonderful idea, but it, in practice it's not as great as you think and actually in my own experience my grandmother on my father's side lived to be 104 and I asked her one time um, grandma what's it like to be you know to live to be over a hundred and she said it's not all it's cracked up to be um, because my you know, she, she outlived two husbands and she said, you know, my husbands have died and all my friends have died. And, you know, it can be very lonely when you're the only one left. And, you know, she, she did not outlive her own children. She did outlive one grandchild and she outlived my mother who was her daughter in law. Um, but it was a thing of just that her generation was gone and she was still living. And I think you are a product of your time. And I don't know, it's a thing of change, I think. I don't know if that everything has a beginning, a middle and an end. I think it's just that things are constantly changing if you think about it and you are part of that change. One of the reasons why I did love Orson Scott Card's novels is because it does do a great deal of philosophy and his novels and his short stories do make you think. It is why I, I, you know, I do, it does make me sad that somebody who is that, I don't think I would buy another Orson Scott Card book. Would I? No, I haven't actually. I guess it's one of those things of when they say never become friends with your heroes. Because you'll find out that they have failings and they're human too, and you know, he was one of my heroes, and I I think he still is in a way. Where his writing is so beautiful, I want I wish I could write like him, but oh, maybe I well no I can't, <laughs> but maybe someday I'll write something that's somewhat good. So this is um. My review of Mortal Gods. I think that Orson Scott Card's view on the fact that science fiction is the last refuge of religious literature. Not necessarily. I think there's plenty of philosophical and religious writing that can be found in any fiction or even nonfiction. I think there can be beauty and holiness found in any writing really. <laughs> Thinking about like My Octopus Teacher, how it's so spiritual in a way. And it's just it's just a documentary about a, a small octopus that's like barely bigger than your hand and how this man learned life stories from it. I think you can get religious or spiritual literature from many different sources, not just science fiction. So that's my take on that. But I do believe it was a great idea to be thinking about how immortal beings would be jealous of mortal beings. Which, then again, I think he's right in saying that to be immortal is not as great as you think. Like my grandma said, it's not all is cracked up to be. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pluto is a Planet. As always, if you have any short stories or science fiction fantasy novel that you would like me to review, please let me know through Anchor Messaging.